0: Welcome in to another edition of Between the Lines Virtual Academy, where a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I am your co host, Brent Hinson, and today we are once again fortunate enough to welcome in a guest who previously walked us through his role in the 2013 bunker hostage crisis in Midland City, Alabama. You can hear that special two-part episode on our website right now at between the lines of virtualacademy.com. But today, he's here to talk about another significant event that he was involved with, an event that just marked its 10th anniversary in April, that being the Boston Marathon bombing. But before we bring him in, allow me to introduce our host, Mr. Michael Warren. Brent, you and I are very different
1: in some ways and also very similar in others. And uh, one of the ways that you and I are similar is that we can be emotional guys. And part of the reason why we had to wait this long to bring our guest back on is because I was blown away emotionally uh, by the last time he was here. And I think that you feel
0: the same way that I do. It was one of our our best episodes. I mean, it was so good. We, we broke it into a two-part episode. It was, he, he walked us through with uh, such detail and describing the events of that um, Midland City, Alabama situation that uh, I've been looking forward to talking to him about this particular situation. I think it'll be a very interesting episode. Thank
1: you for putting it towards the afternoon uh, as we're recording, because if it's anything like last time, I'm going to be exhausted when the episode is over because it was right. just so so gripping, but why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce him and uh, let's bring him back
0: out here. Our guest today is a West Point graduate. As a matter of fact, he has two sons who are currently cadets at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He went on to serve his country as both a U.S. Army officer and FBI special agent, retiring as assistant special agent in charge in the Bureau's fourth largest office in Miami just last year. As I mentioned earlier, he previously joined us in episodes 20 and 21 last fall. And today he's here to discuss the domestic terrorist attack that claimed the lives of three people and injured hundreds more. We welcome back to the podcast, Kyle Volwinkel. Thanks so much for carving out some time for us, sir.
2: Thank you so much, Michael and Brent, for having me back. It's a privilege to be back on with you both.
1: Now, Kyle, I'm going to be vulnerable here and transparent. You bring street cred to our podcast and to me. When we're going through here, there's all been a lot of talk about this documentary that just came out about the topic we're going to have today. And I'm like, yeah, I've talked to that guy right there. The guy was involved in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to say what an impact you made on, on me. And I think also on Brent and also more importantly, the impact that you made on our listeners, uh, because I had a bunch of folks reach out to me after that one and saying man i had no idea because you you see what you see on the news but it doesn't always cover everything
2: well thank you uh, for the kind words it it truly means a lot because that's really my goal now in the post law enforcement phase of my life to tell those stories about the incredible things that the fbi did And, you know, my small role or contributions in them to hopefully have the back of those currently wearing the uniform and to maybe inspire younger generations to serve their communities as well.
0: And it should be pointed out, uh, Kyle was instrumental in helping us uh, welcome on Gary Nesner. Who, of course, has uh, been in the, the news lately with the whole Waco series on, on Showtime? So we thank you for that.
2: Absolutely, yeah. He's like the the godfather of the FBI negotiation. Truly, <laughs> right. he started the unit, the crisis negotiation unit, and his you know training principles and curriculum he developed with his first cadre is is really almost virtually unchanged. Those kind of guiding principles and things he instituted. So I yeah you know, I talked to. Gary on a regular basis. He's kind of like a mentor to me as well. And as I mentioned before, I'm almost like a child of Gary Nessner and, you know, tactical <laughs> commander of HRT since I, you know, worked in both those worlds. So I'm like the poster boy of, you know, negotiator and tactical action. I
1: want to just share this with you. As we're recording, I was, uh, in alabama teaching just a couple days ago and i told the folks i I was teaching a class called training the 21st century law enforcement professional and one of the things that really bothers me as a profession is that we seem to have become a profession where we try to hide behind the fact say hey listen i'm a cop Uh, i'm a knuckle dragger I, i i'm not you know i'm not an intellectual but you're an incredibly humble guy but you're both you're the intellectual and then you're also an operator, but then you also transition into this other part of your career with a CMT. To me, you exemplify what we need in this profession because you're a professional and that's what we need.
2: I, I again truly appreciate the kind words. I've I've been fortunate to be a part of right two kind of incredible unique, you know, national assets. So the FBI hostage rescue team and then again the Crisis negotiation unit. So I was surrounded with fantastic people who are just striving themselves, you know, everyone elevates each other in that, you know, kind of dedication to excellence. And that's, uh, you know, no small part. There was collective successes in both of these cases that I was involved in because everyone again supports one another and everyone that level of professionalism in HRT and CNU is, is truly remarkable and it is filled with people. And that's why I went to CNU, I should say, is that that critical analysis, the critical thinking, which you and I talked about, you know, just last week, Michael, is so fundamental to law enforcement these days. It's not as nowhere near easy to be a law enforcement officer today as it used to be. And those skills to critically think and analyze and assess behavior and try to de-escalate Because everything's on camera now too, right? No interaction. And it's good for law enforcement, right? To have that recorded to protect them. Uh, But also you just have to be so careful that two second clip is not taken out of context.
1: I guess I'm going to put you on the spot here and, and see if you agree with me. But I think that once you accept a position in law enforcement, then you are also accepting the responsibility of continuing to become the professional that we need and expect of our law enforcement
2: community oh I absolutely concur and that's why continuing education you know every year in the bureau i would you know read books attend conferences as, as other agents do and go to headquarters to get that professional development you know, one should never stop learning to strive to be the best law enforcement professional they can be.
1: Absolutely. And uh, last thing before we get into the story, we have fortunate for us and for society, we have a small part of the profession that continues to operate off of police academy knowledge. And in some cases, that police academy knowledge may be years or even decades old. And that makes it more dangerous for that officer. It makes it more dangerous for their partners and for the public as well.
2: Absolutely. It needs to be refresher training. I mean, just for example, you know, firearms skills perish, and firearms instructors in the FBI had to be recertified every five years. So then they were updated on the current latest curriculum, tactics and techniques taught to the new agents so just an example you can't be trained once and then 20 years expect that training to stick uh, with that individual
1: absolutely let's go if we could because uh there's been a lot of coverage uh recently about a terrorist incident that took place in the city of boston why don't you just give us a brief overview of the incident itself and then we'll start talking about uh the response to that incident
2: uh first i forgot to say one thing i also I think we have some simulators here. I'd like to uh, express to all of you, may the fourth be with you. Today being a special day, I'm a Star Wars. We're recording on Star Wars days, so yes. and you were very upfront about that. You know, <laughs> I appreciate. Uh, my family, I yeah, were big Star Wars fans. So, anyways, just had to get that out. My my son would be upset if I didn't <laughs> give a shout out to the fourth. Okay, so. We're going to talk now about really the capture. I'll I'll go a little bit into the uh, background, but not too much. And I also want to say I, I do not believe in reciting either of the brothers' names. There's a Latin term, damnatio memoriae, which is a Latin phrase meaning condemnation of memory, that the person should be excluded from official accounts because it disturbs me for killers to receive any personal notoriety. And in this case, the you know younger Boston bomber, his face was featured on the cover of a Rolling Stone article. To me, a poor decision. And again, to publicly show his face, he deserves no attention. So throughout this, I will not cite their names. And interesting aside that the author of that same Rolling Stone magazine cover, Janet Reitman, after the incident in Boston, she obtained my phone number. And she attempted to coerce my cooperation for her article. Really? She left me a voicemail because I'll explain later how she got my phone number. And she said, you know, I'm Janet Wright, I'm a reporter, Rolling Stone. And I would like your cooperation to be interviewed for an article. And if you don't, then I'm going to publish your name. And we strive to. Really? Yes. Very troubling uh, and disturbing, right? To Ethically, I would. Uh,
0: Think so as a journalist.
2: Truly, I think the wrong way to conduct business, you know, coercion and pressure to threaten to publicly reveal, even though I'm a, a law enforcement officer, when you're in the bureau, right, you seek to be a quiet professional, you do not want attention, you don't want to be singled out. And so I obviously went to our lawyers. We sat down with our Office of Public Affairs and came up with a I thought a great game plan. We agreed to an interview with her. So I sat down with our critical incident response group, CERG, you know, the umbrella organization for HRT and CNU and then the OPA representative from headquarters. And I answered her questions as vaguely with as little details as possible. It was great. So after an hour, you know, she said, well, this wasn't very helpful at all. <laughs> I smiled inside and said that was exactly our plan. So she got nothing out of Success. me. <laughs> just just an aside, uh, again, kind of a uh, unacceptable behavior, I think.
1: Absolutely.
2: So this is also the first time I've I've posted A couple posts on linkedin about this but i have not ever told the full story you know to a podcast or anywhere really out there outside of law enforcement circles so you guys are the first to really get the behind the scenes details of the capture of the boston marathon bomber
0: and we appreciate that you know that means a lot to us that you would entrust us for this
2: well you guys have been very good to me i appreciate what you guys are doing for the law enforcement community so it just seemed right and natural especially being the you know, ten-year anniversary very significant to me and, and all those who worked that uh, incident. And it has received a lot of attention. I'll just touch on this. I, I've received several inquiries from friends and colleagues saying, "Hey, they watched the Netflix series, and they have one sentence about the negotiated, you know, resolution and what happened there at the boat." And uh, I was just as kind of surprised and dismayed as they were that there was no attempts to uh, at least tell the true details of how his capture was resolved. But you're going to hear that today.
0: Yeah, and, and that's the thing that I, I mentioned to you. The the name of the series is American Manhunt, the Boston Marathon Bombing. And I, I, I wanted to watch the series before we talked to you today. And I sat down and I thought, I thought it was like a, a one hour or two hour like film and it was a three episode miniseries and I'm like, oh, I got to cram through this. So I saw those three episodes and I figured, well, Kyle will show up in, in the third episode and then it gets to the third episode and they they don't even mention the negotiation part and your name's not brought up. And I'm like, well, what gives? There's what
2: happened? Here? And I'm fine with my name not being mentioned, but it, it troubles me that our unit, right, the crisis negotiation unit was not mentioned, right? Because we are the ones which we will talk about here, you know, are with our HRT colleagues, the two Two units are the ones that successfully, peacefully resolve this. Actually, there was one sentence in there, the Boston PD superintendent said, and they negotiated him out of the boat. Well, it's not nearly that simple. It took, you know, an hour and 15 <laughs> minutes. And there was a lot of thought, foresight, you know, critical thinking, which I'll talk about went into that. So there's kind of three key themes I'll just mention, you know, for the audience, the three key themes kind of takeaways for me is being prepared for the situation. I'll talk about what we did. You know, negotiators make a difference. We are uh, often overlooked, sometimes dismissed by maybe an overconfident tactical leader or on-scene commander. And it's not as sexy right, or as exciting as tactical resolution. And I definitely understand the tactical perspective having eight years on HRT. But the addition and the combination and the synchronization of those efforts between negotiators and tactical is almost unstoppable when they're, again, synced up. It's a more sophisticated approach to resolve incidents, and it's safer. And then the, the third kind of theme is just the, you know, performing under pressure. You know, controlling one's emotions, remaining calm, focus on the things you can control, because this was an incredibly pressure-filled situation where we did use words. The power of words were incredible, right? The words were more powerful than weapons. So let's get to the bombing. Most people remember day one is April 15th, 2013, about 2.49 p.m. So what started out as a near-perfect Patriots Day Boston Marathon celebration ended with tragedy with those two explosions Near the finish line, and three people were killed, and 260 people were injured. The first explosion was very close to the finish line. The second one was about 550 feet down the street from that first one. Interesting enough, you know, later analysis, you know, painstaking video review from all the stores by you know hundreds of FBI agents and Boston officers and all the other law enforcement that were helping this did find the uh, videos the subjects unbelievably followed their normal routine, right they went to the store, they you know bought milk, went to dinner with a friend, they went to the gym, they went to class and so they acted as if nothing had happened right amidst this all this carnage that they had created. And those three days were right exceedingly painful and difficult on everyone in the greater Boston and you know northeast area of the states because no one knew who had perpetrated this right horrendous act. And we had no real solid leads except a couple pictures. And it wasn't until Thursday, April 18th, about 5 p.m., the FBI decided to release photos of the subject placing the bombs there on the finish line. And that's what kind of catapults the behaviors into the you know next level of the subjects. Because remember, the, for the previous three days, they were just going about their normal routines.
1: The, the one one thing that, that was interesting to me about the documentary was that they actually gave very uh, due credit to the video review people. Uh, because it, for anybody who's ever had to sit and review video like that, and most of the time you're coming up with nothing, it requires a special kind of dedication to pay that kind of detail so i think we have to give credit just like the documentary did to those folks that did that because that, that's painstaking work right there
2: absolutely and you're talking thousands of images and videos because we were asking right everyone I don't, I don't know the actual number of spectators and participants but think every one of those cell phones right everyone was taking pictures and videos as well as all the cct cameras that were in stores and covering street corners Yeah, just a monumental task, which the analysts and team did an incredible job right, in extracting those two pictures that they could release to the public.
1: Because without that, you don't know who you're looking for. And and then the other thing that, that I wanted to point out for our listeners was the number of injured. And the reason why I want to point that out is because a lot of people, they look at the murder rate or they look at the number of officers killed per year and they believe that we're becoming safer as a society. And the truth of the matter is if that bombing would have happened 20 years earlier, there would have been a lot more fatalities because medical technology is saving people that wouldn't have been saved before. Fortunately, thankfully, there were some people that jumped in and started providing emergency medical aid that made the number of killed less than it probably should have been
2: oh absolutely there's an amazing first responder response with medical and even you know civilians who were medical trained and even not medical trained were were helping people out applying tourniquets you know rushing to aid the community really came together i shouldn't say not surprisingly right community boston strong came together to respond to this terrorist incident and show the city was stronger People are stronger than the hate of these two brothers.
1: And then the last thing, and I'll let you get back to it. I apologize. That period between when it happens and when we find the person That truly is a period of terror. I think back to the the incident out in San Bernardino where the husband and wife went into the office party and started shooting. And there was a period there of about an hour and a half, two hours where they were in the wind. Nobody knew where they were. In that case, they knew who they were looking for. And still, it was a terrible time. I mean, it was a very terroristic time. And in Boston, it was in terms of days, not hours. And that had to have a tremendous impact on the people that lived in the area.
2: 100%. Yeah. Put everyone on edge, right? Is there going to be another bomb here? It also reminds me a little, I wasn't there for this case, but like the DC nightmare case, remember the two D.C. snipers oh, yeah. shooting people at gas yep. stations. And that's what's so horrible about terrorism, right? It's just that in this case, two individuals in this nightmare case, two individuals literally wreaked havoc upon our community and our cities, you know, by their horrendous actions. And, you know, they literally shut down Boston, you know, for almost a week with their fear, their cowardly tactics. We got them as we you know always do. But you have to acknowledged the truly negative impact upon the community and the psyche of the people and law enforcement right the pressure on law enforcement was building every minute that we first off couldn't even identify them right let alone find them first step is identifying and that we had to get the public's help right with the release of those photos because we did not know who they were
1: you know we had it just happen yesterday as we're recording in the city of atlanta you've got that time period between when the incident occurs and to me, there's three points incident occurring, finally knowing who it is. And then the third one would be finding him. If it hadn't been a release of that picture yesterday, they wouldn't have identified who the guy was probably. And that's kind of the same thing that happened in the Boston case.
2: The bureau debated long and hard about that releasing the photos. And at the end of the day, I, I believe it's worth it, especially if our investigative avenues are not producing any results, we need the public's assistance. And that actually did help, right? Because then we were able to get some investigative leads Although the negative, right, and this is a counter argument to releasing the photos, is then it reveals to the subjects that we're on to them, right? And then they will change their behavior, which is exactly what they did. So that evening, they realize, oh, my gosh, our faces are now plastered out there. It's only a matter of time before they actually find out where we live. So they go and horrendously, they need another weapon, right? They decide they need additional firearms. So they ambush MIT police officer Sean Collier in his vehicle. He never stood a chance, really. And the medical examiner later testified in court that he was shot between the eyes at a distance of 12 to 18 inches. So I want to remember his incredible sacrifice and remind everyone, again, the extreme cowardice of these two individuals. Luckily, they were not able to retrieve his weapon because his holster retention device, and they didn't know how to unlock you know, that retention device of his holster.
1: And there was a lot, and you brought it up, but there was a lot made in the documentary about that debate on whether or not to release the picture, from an investigator standpoint, once you've exhausted all the other avenues, was there really any other choice at that point?
2: I didn't think so, but I, I wasn't in on that inner decision. You know, that was at the highest levels of the bureau and, and DOJ. Uh, although we gave our input, you know, to the bosses, uh, which was to release it, because the other thing is the information gap of not knowing: are there more bombs out there? Are there more exploding devices? You know, the the panic and the fear in the public, we, we could not continue, I don't think, to wait any longer. So, yeah, it's, there's always a pro and con to it. But at that point, it had been three full days and we need the public's assistance.
1: Uh, I just want to point out that it's very easy with the benefit of hindsight 2020 to go back and second guess decisions that were made. Obviously, what, what happened with the officer who was killed, you know, we said, well, that's why we that's why we shouldn't have done it. That information wasn't available at the time the decision was
2: made. And also, we're not responsible, right, for these subjects' actions as much as we, you know, like to place the responsibility on ourselves as law enforcement officers. They chose their actions you know our assessment was that they would most likely flee wherever they were at but maybe through their movement right they would be sloppy we would be able to detect them or someone could see them and we thought there's potential for additional violence but we didn't see this coming right we didn't know that they needed additional weapons no one really foresaw that it would provoke more violence at least i did not
1: I think it was reasonable not to see that they make the decision to do that and this incident occurs what goes on after the officer
2: is shot? So they try to retrieve his weapon. As like I said, but thankfully his holster retention device—they don't know how to operate—so they're not able to get his weapon. And then they flee to a, a gas station, and they see a, a Mercedes SUV. There's an engineering student, Dun Meng, and he gets carjacked, right? Because they're looking for another vehicle uh, on the 18th. Now the older brother asks Meng, "Hey, do you have a GPS in the car?" And he says, "Yes." The younger brother was actually concerned about connecting his iPhone to play music in the car and and did not because he was worried about being tracked. During the car ride, Meng received a call and the older brother threatened to shoot him in the head if he spoke Chinese because Meng was Chinese and spoke Chinese and his friends started speaking Chinese on the phone call. And then when they stopped to get gas to fill up, the student made a split-second decision, Meng, brilliantly to escape while one was at the ATM And the other one was was focused on the GPS in the car. The older brother grabbed him by the shirt as he bolted from the car. But thankfully, he was able to escape, run across the street. And he dialed 911 from a, uh, I think it was a gas station across the street, alerted authorities. Hey, the you know, bombers are in a black SUV. He actually knew his like vehicle tracking number on the GPS unit like some 12-digit number code, right, which I couldn't tell you if my life depended on it. <laughs> 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 really fascinating. So it helped police and law enforcement, right, track down his car. We do track it down. It's driving through Watertown. And the Watertown police tried to effect traffic stop. The brothers were kind of blocked in. Massive firefight erupted. The brothers ferociously fought back. They shot at them. They launched IEDs to the police. You know, several improvised explosive devices. The brother at one point, they're a little bit separated from one other. He runs out of ammunition. He's tackled, handcuffed in the street. The younger brother jumps into their that same Mercedes SUV, tries to flee the scene, and he runs over his older brother, which I think was kind of the fitting end to the cowardly older brother. So after these two fatal clashes with law enforcement, right, the murdering of Sean Collier and firing shots and hurling IEDs, at the police in Watertown, hardly anyone thought there was a chance for a negotiated resolution or surrender.
1: If any of our listeners have watched the video of that encounter, it sounded like something you would expect from a war zone. I mean, the number of rounds that were fired, the rate at which they were fired. If I would have seen that live, if I would have seen that as part of live news coverage or whatever, I would have exactly said what what you said. There's absolutely zero chance that this guy is going to be taken alive and is going to be taken into custody. Folks, if you haven't watched the documentary, go watch it. And for nothing else, for that little section right there, just to understand, because that's the context in which you're going to have to come in and work in just a little bit.
0: And again, this was a residential area, right? Because uh, and somebody said in the documentary, it's surprising that no one was, no civilians were injured during all this, because you got pipe bombs going off, you got gunfire, it's just, it's miraculous that no one civilian-wise in that neighborhood was injured.
2: Yeah, great point too. Yeah, you see the destruction from these IEDs, shrapnel, and all the rounds fired, you know, great point uh, that we were fortunate, none of the civilians were injured.
1: Even with all this going on though, after he runs over his brother, he's able to make at least a brief escape at that point, isn't he?
2: Yeah, so he flees in the vehicle, he drives for just two, three blocks, and then ditches the vehicle and then flees on foot. We do find, I think this is at Watertown, his backpack. Interesting enough, inside his backpack is a uh, one-page resume <laughs> for the brothers. So it names uh, their brothers. So now we have their, their names and pictures and identification. So we know exactly who they are thanks to that backpack left at the scene. So that's like Thursday night, Friday morning. That's like twelve thirty-five, roughly a.m. Friday morning uh, when that firefight occurs. So then Friday morning... On the 19th, the uh, governor of Massachusetts issues an extraordinary shelter in place order for all Boston residents and the surrounding communities. You know, tensions were extremely high. You know, even the storied Boston bars were shuttered. Yeah. So think about that, right? The, the governor is ordering people to stay inside their homes. At least, first time in my life, I've ever heard, you know, such a you know, statement from a governor to uh, do not go outside, stay in your home, showing you the effects on society as a whole there. So we are kind of assessing the situation, right? Negotiators, we assess behavior, right? We critically analyze. And even we assess a peaceful resolution is unlikely. They're engaging in highly risky, highly destructive behavior, right? They've murdered the MIT officer. They conducted a risky carjacking and kidnapping of the MIT student. They have the extremely violent confrontation with police at Watertown. Even CNU thought unlikely that they would surrender. However... It's our job to be proactively prepared. That's one of the key themes that I mentioned in the beginning. Despite our collective view that there were slim chances of being utilized, we deployed four members to Boston. Uh, I was the first to get there. According to the FBI protocol, when tactical assets are deployed, the negotiators are attached with them. So uh, Mark Thundercloud, one of my colleagues in CNU, he was with One HRT. they went to New Bedford, for example, because their phone linked to the younger brother had pinged there. In a student housing complex, and they conducted a call-out, detained three friends of the young bomber, uh, but none of the bombers were located there. Who was in charge? Because that that seemed unclear. That's a great question, and this is a broader point of discussion. As a negotiator, right, we are simply advisors to the on-scene commander and those in charge. In Boston, there was not a clear established chain of command, and I know FBI senior leadership, in my opinion, should have taken a more proactive stance. This is clearly a domestic terrorism incident. And the FBI has primary investigative responsibility and jurisdiction at the federal level for a terrorist incident. There is no question that the FBI is the lead and we have to, and work with our partners, right? We have joint terrorism task force all over the nation where we have colleagues from whether it's NYPD or Boston PD vetted on those task force, but the FBI is the lead in Boston I did not feel that the FBI took a strong enough leadership role. I think we're almost deferential as I I'm jumping to the end here. But at the end, the Boston PD and we weren't even in Boston PD's jurisdiction. We were in Watertown. But the first notice to the public about his capture was by a tweet from the Boston Police Department. And again, it was the FBI that captured him and successfully you know, detained him and resolved the situation. But the bureau was eerily silent. And that's why I think to this day, the Bureau has not been as proactive. They should have been kind of leading that. And again, working with our colleagues, we can't do it without those partners. But the FBI could have a better job of leading, in my opinion.
1: From an operator perspective, because you've not only been on the negotiation side, but also the operator, established chain of command is imperative for an operation, especially an operation of this scale. Because you have to take direction from somebody. There has to be somebody that's responsible for assigning responsibilities and and setting up areas of responsibility. And it would seem like that the lack of that would make your job as a negotiator even more difficult than perhaps it
2: already was. Well, I think the issue, especially in Boston, is there was a lot of egos. Right. At play and a lot of entities at play. Right. You had the governor who who, rightfully so. Right. Is engaged. The Massachusetts State Police are heavily engaged. The Boston PD are heavily engaged. But again, the FBI is a federal government. Right. So very clearly we should have, again, kind of taken the, the lead. And we were every entity was collectively talking and engaging. The leaders were in the same room together. But then again, in my opinion, each leader was going back to kind of their units and kind of directing their units to do uh, so there was coordination, but not true leadership, if that makes sense.
1: Coordination to a degree, but collaboration, true collaboration seemed to be at least not where it should have been.
2: I, I, t- I totally agree. Friday morning, this is after the, the big shootout. He's on the run. We don't know where he's at. The shelter in place order was issued, and now police are going door to door searching for him in that you know a large area to see where he may have escaped. And then on the media there's some very interesting developments the suspects family members right now that they've been named the suspects are being queried and pressed by the media one uncle was interviewed and he said that you know they're immigrants to the US and he described them as losers and he was shocked and horrified and said they do not deserve to live on this earth All right so very negative hmm. and understandably so right comments from family members about these you know, two brothers. There's also an aunt in Canada. She was pressed by the media. And actually she claimed law enforcement planted the evidence. There's no way they would do this. What we're trying to do is, you know, negotiators is look for potential third party intermediaries. We refer to them as TPIs, right? If someone has a pre existing relationship with a subject that we can possibly leverage to law enforcement's advantage to help kind of broker a conversation or ideally cooperation of the subject, then that's what we'll do. So we're assessing the media. We see these two family members and they're not candidates, right? They're not going to be able to help us, <laughs> especially the one that said they deserve to die. Uh, however, there was one person spoke positively of them. His wrestling coach, the younger brother's wrestling coach, is Peter Payak at the Cambridge Ridge and Latin School. He spoke On CNN, he was interviewed and said, yeah, he was a, you know, he was a dedicated kid. All the kids love him. And he was elected captain for two years on the team. So he was speaking positively about the younger brother. So again, as we're looking for potential TPIs, this guy looks perfect. So I called him on the phone that Friday, uh, maybe around noon, talked with him for a while and was asking him details about his relationship, asking him about the younger brother. What can he tell me about him specifically? you know, their, their personal history. And would he be willing, you know, possibly do a media plea for us? Cause one thing we talked about when seeing you is, you know, maybe this TPA, maybe the wrestling coach, we could craft a media message, you know, for the wrestling coach in front of the camera, have him, you know, wear a, like a polo with the subtle wrestling club logo, you know, subtly on the polo to visually send a message to the younger bomber and also say some words, you know, that, that he would like to see him come out of this alive. And so we're assessing him and he seems like a good candidate. And then I'm supposed to meet him actually that night around 7 p.m. at the Arsenal Mall. That's where I was located, along with a thousand other, literally a thousand other law enforcement officers, maybe even more. We were staged in the Arsenal Mall parking lot. And when I was getting ready to meet him, well, that's when David Hennenberry in his backyard, because the shelter in place order is lifted at 6 p.m. that evening. Right. The governor lifts that. And Henneberry goes in his backyard. And he's inspecting the boat and he notices the boat cover is torn a little bit. He walks over, glances inside, and thinks he sees someone. So he goes back to inside his home and calls 911. And that's when law enforcement is first notified I think the bomber's in a boat in my backyard at 67 Franklin Street.
1: When a call like that comes in, in a situation like that, that has to be. I don't wanna say overwhelming, but you're talking about being in a place with, I believe you're probably correct, a thousand cops, and that information comes in, it becomes difficult to manage the resources at that point.
2: Exceptionally, and this is one of the big takeaways that we tell people now in these critical incidents, is you you cannot self-deploy. Hundreds of law enforcement officers self-deployed to 67 Franklin Street, and that's not what should happen, right? We lost command and control right? When people self-deploy, we don't know what assets are where. We don't have accountability of our personnel. So again, that kind of collective leadership was exceedingly challenging. Everyone's trying to help, but that's not helping the situation. You're making it worse, right? By just self-deploying.
1: But we've seen that before. And I guess that's the part that really bothers me is we've seen that at other incidents before, yet we continue as a profession to have that type of issue at some of these events. When are we going to learn?
2: Yeah, well, it almost costs officers their life. Michael, before you talked about sounding like gun battle in Iraq or Afghanistan, which I've been to both places and I've been in combat. This reminded me of that because even at Arsenal Mall, when I was standing in the parking lot, I could hear these shots fired. And it was like a fusillade, like hundreds of rounds I heard fired. And I thought, well, I haven't heard that since being overseas. So, you know, again, I'm not going to get into who fired first. So I don't think we really even know. But once once officer fired, others joined for, you know, cacophony of rounds, you know, fired. Uh, eventually the Boston PD superintendent, you know, yells repeatedly, hold your fire, hold your fire. Someone deployed some uh, gas through the boat, but there's no response from the subject. Then the Massachusetts State Police they had a big armored vehicle called a Bearcat. Assertively advances straight up to the boat. It has a you know mechanical arm on the front. They try to tip the boat over, right? They try to eject him from the boat forcibly, but the boat trailer prevents it. Then they use that same mechanical arm to poke a hole. There was a white plastic tarp cover you know like a winterization cover on the boat so they tear that cover open to gain some visibility into the vessel the tarp is still covering 80 percent of the boat but now there's at least a little bit of visibility into the boat and then there's a loudspeaker on that bearcat one of the troopers you know in that imposing vehicle repeatedly commands the bomber come out come out come out and again there's no response you know even after all that law enforcement pressure the subject the younger brother was still completely non-responsive. Every one of the attempts, you know, to get him off the boat failed.
1: You told me already that, that you had in your mind that you believed that there wasn't going to be a peaceful resolution to this event. Hearing all this stuff that's going on at the mall, you can hear the gunfight going on and all this other stuff. When you're hearing the efforts that are being undertaken and there's still not a peaceful resolution, it almost has to cement in your mind that, hey, this is not going to end with me talking to somebody.
2: Oh, 100%. And I'll tell you, so I'm at the mall, as I mentioned, I hear the gunfire and I think, OK, that thankfully, hopefully it's over. Right. There's a little bit of sense of possible relief in my mind thinking he didn't survive that, you know, those hundreds of rounds fired. And then I'm standing there for the next couple minutes, you know, just talking to a fellow uh, negotiator. And then I see the uh, HRT, our plans officer, we call them the S3, just like the military. I see the plans officer running from the joint command post to the HRT team leader and he's sprinting. I thought, boy, if he's sprinting, especially if it can't be over, right? If he's sprinting, that means something's still going on. So then I run over to the location as well. And the HRT team leader is said, hey, we're going to get him out. He's in the boat, in the backyard. Let's go get him. I'm the one that said to him, I said, hey, can negotiators come along with you? And he said, uh, oh, sure, I guess. So even at that point, myself included, right? We didn't think negotiators be needed. But if it was not for me, like saying, hey, why don't we come with you? And negotiators would not have been there at the boat.
0: And that's a point that I wanted to bring up. Is there not a protocol in place where if someone goes, hey, let's bring you guys with us just in
2: case? Yeah, it is a standard FBI protocol. Always have negotiators with you. However, in in that kind of rare, exceptional circumstance, right? A no notice, urgent, life-threatening situation, and I'm not blaming the team leader. He did an amazing job. He was fantastic. But it wasn't on the forefront of his mind, right, to have a negotiator attached to him. But he knew it was a policy. And when I suggested, it, he said, yes, of course.
1: Wouldn't you agree, though, that if the negotiator himself, you, believes that there's not going to be a peaceful resolution, the team leader probably believes it even more than you?
2: Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not trying to knock him at all. And I totally understand the perspective. I'm just saying this is that, that proactiveness, you know, kind of being at the right place at the right time, because just in case. Right, And it was just in case. I said, hey, why don't we go just in case? And yeah, in his mind, I think he was probably 99.9999% sure negotiators would not be used. But because he knew it was policy and because he knew it was the right thing, he said, sure, hop in the, the last car. So I, I hopped in the last car. Actually, it was a, uh, an agent from headquarters. So I hopped into him. We're following that HRT vehicle convoy. It's just only a few blocks from the Arsenal Mall. And we get there and we have to weave through, again, 400 plus law enforcement officers are on scene. Like alphabet soup, ATF, Massachusetts State Police, Boston PD, IRS, like Department of State. I literally saw a Department of State guy with a vest that said Department of State, you know, federal agent. I thought, why is there an armed Department of State guy here?
1: Diplomatic Security Division. There we go.
2: Yeah, I just, yeah, I was like, wow, nothing's surprising me now, right? <laughs> Seeing just this incredible armada, <laughs> right, of law enforcement officers there on the scene, the team leader very masterfully and artfully weaves up to the, uh, you know, the word comes from the Joint Command Post. This was the first time there was kind of good leadership and good decisive decision making that the Joint Command Post put out hey, HRT is coming. They are taking over and they're going to lead the operation from here. So at that point, that was the finally, in my opinion, the stepping up, taking charge, and having the national asset affect the arrest was the right decision. And so that, you know, came via radio hey, HRT is coming. So they knew we were arriving. But even so, it's a very delicate situation to come into the scene of a firefight where, you know, hundreds of rounds in shot, everyone's on edge. And the team leader, uh, I'll just call him John, again, was just so artful, so graceful and tactful. Again, taking over this scene and moving you know, other units out of the way, repositioning the units and having his people, HRT, occupy the inner perimeter positions uh, was just a brilliant, masterful job that he did.
1: It's been my experience that when you have a scene like that, for example, when we would go to do a door, the people that you had to give the most in-depth safety briefing to were your outer perimeter people. Right. And, and, you know, you'd have to go through, hey, listen, you know, over here, gunshots inside the house, we'll handle it. Do not fire inside the house. And that had to be even more applicable in that situation that you guys were in, because these folks had all just fired all these rounds. Everybody's jacked up everybody's on edge. It had to be a real concern for you guys, the safety of our people from unintentional consequences.
2: Absolutely, and yeah, every again, we walk by 400 of these, you know, armed officers, men and women who <laughs> had just shot. So like you said, emotions are high, tensions couldn't be any higher, right? Does he have more bombs in the boat? Is he gonna come out shooting? You know, friendly fire is a very serious thing. Again, that team leader did a great job kind of instilling some order into the chaos and taking charge uh, of that scene I'm attached to them actually I got separated my uh my two colleagues from CNU were not able to climb a fence that we'd scaled this fence to get into the inner perimeter so I'm alone at this point but I know they're gonna they're gonna eventually find a way around and I'm just kind of standing next to near the team leader outside the the front part of 6 seven Franklin Street so he first thing he does the team leader says hey let 's pull that bear cat away from being you know right in front of the uh, boat let 's pull it back and you know kind of take a pause here for a moment to be a little less assertive and then once his people are set, he decides to deploy some non lethal flashbangs right the concussion devices which emit super bright. Flash and like 180 decibel noise. And maybe if we launch some of those in the boat, maybe that will help dislodge him or evict him from the boat. So that's the first action that the FBI does at the scene. Uh, We didn't have any agents there previously with that first wave of law enforcement officers. HRT and CNU were the first ones, uh, again, to arrive from the Bureau. They launched the flashbangs and there's some Massachusetts State Police had overhead helicopter with FLIR, the forward-looking infrared radar, and the FLIR does a great job capturing. And you can hear the radio traffic of the pilot talking about the flashbangs going in the boat, the subject not moving as a result of those.
1: From a guy that was on scene, what was it like getting that radio traffic that confirmed that there was indeed somebody in the boat? You've got the one guy that uh, says, hey, I think I saw somebody in there. But that to me, that was the And i know it was a documentary but that was the moment it's like okay now we know he's in there what was that feeling like at the scene
2: you're exactly right it was confirmation like this is it this is the guy right he's hiding in the boat he may be dead but he's definitely in the boat because anyone else you know would have come out and no one's gonna be hiding in their boat you know during a shelter-in-place order having that helicopter you know confirmation did obviously cement the fact he's there but also elevated you know the pressure and expectations on us all because we knew not just, you know, the state of Massachusetts is watching, the whole nation was watching. Word had leaked to the media. There was press outside that perimeter at Watertown. So literally the nation is on edge, wondering what is gonna happen now the bomber is caught in the boat.
0: Next Tuesday, Kyle is going to walk us through his negotiations with the bombing suspect. Negotiations that led to the bomber's eventual surrender to authorities. Hear his firsthand account. And accounts not included in the Netflix miniseries. It's all in part two of this special two-part episode, available Tuesday, May 30th, at Between the Lines with VirtualAcademy.com.